So have you ever felt that God was particularly close to you? Have you ever had a spiritual experience? You know, I'm not, not a show of hands, but, but do, do you, do you recognize that sensation, that feeling that God is particularly close, that you, you have somehow connected with God in a way that's different from, from the normal way? I think a lot of people have, but, but if you have, then it raises the question, why is that a special occasion? What, why is that out of the ordinary? Why is that not the normal way of living, particularly for people who follow Christ? Why is it that those special spiritual experiences are unique somehow? That, that they stand out in our minds? And, and maybe, maybe even beyond that, maybe you have felt the opposite. You felt that God was distant, that you have felt God was silent, that, that you prayed to God, but you heard nothing back. And before we go on, I want to say if you have ever felt that, that's okay. You are in great company if you have ever felt that way. Uh, Jesus said on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far away when I groan for help? Some people say, well, yeah, but that was, that was Jesus was just quoting scripture. He didn't really feel abandoned by God. And I think that they don't understand what Jesus was doing on the cross. But, but even, even if Jesus were only quoting scripture, well, there it is in the Bible, in the Psalms, Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? The psalmist has felt that way. Not just once, not just one psalmist. David says that, but other psalmists as well. Um, in Psalm 10, oh Lord, why do you stand so far away? Why do you hide when I am in trouble? In Psalm 13, oh God, how long will you forget me? Forever? How long will you look the other way? Not just in the Psalms, even in Lamentations. Why do you continue to forget us? Why have you abandoned us for so long? Sometimes we're so far from that spiritual experience of, of God's closeness. We feel, where is God? We feel that God is silent or has even abandoned us. And if you feel that way, you're not alone. Um, after she died, Mother Teresa's diaries came to light. And we learned through those diaries that there was a 40-year period in her life, beginning when she first went to um, the Bay of Bengal, Calcutta. Um, when she first went to uh, Calcutta and founded the, the, the missions there that she did, she began to feel God's absence and not his presence in that great undertaking. So this is the experience of many great Christians. And if you felt it, you shouldn't feel ashamed. But that leaves us with the question, why does God sometimes feel absent? Why is God not close, but rather far away? Well, we're going to look at a passage of Scripture today that speaks to that, I think. Um, and so what we're going to do is we're going to look at a passage when Paul arrived in Corinth. We have been in a series of looking at Paul's journeys in Europe. The series is Greetings from Greece, and we're going to wrap it up today. Paul has been um, traveling throughout the uh, the region of Greece that you see there in the, the little rectangle. So Paul began his second missionary journey in um, Antioch, which is way over on the right side of that. It's in the east in Syria, um, and that's where he returns at the end of our reading. But uh, he has crossed across Asia Minor, and now uh, we began looking at this, how he went into Greece. So we're going to look at the different cities there, and I know it's small print, and it doesn't get any bigger, but... Um, we saw that Paul began in Philippi, and Paul was chased out of Philippi um, and went to Thessalonica. When he went to Thessalonica, he was chased out of Thessalonica, went to Berea, um, and then to Athens. So we see that that has been his path so far. And we left him last week in Athens, and today we're going to follow him from Athens to Corinth. 
Now, um, Corinth is, is on this, uh, this, uh, it's kind of like the Kenai. It's a little chunk of, uh, chunk of Greece that is south of the rest and it's separated from the rest of the mainland by a little isthmus. So the little isthmus there, um, is really what made Corinth an important city. On the east side of that, that, um, isthmus is the, is the port of Kincrae we heard about in our reading. And on the east side is Corinth. And apparently the weather is so bad and the ships were so bad in those days that they would actually unload the ships in Kincrae and carry them across land, those four miles, put them back on a ship in, um, Corinth and, uh, send them off to wherever they were going. It was, it was a port city even though um, the traffic, half of the traffic went across land. Now, in modern era, uh, they built a, um, uh, a canal through there. Um, it was actually proposed as early as seven, seven, 700 BC, uh, and Nero, the, the emperor Nero actually got it started, but it didn't go very far, and when he died, the project died with him. But there is a canal there today. This is a picture of the canal. Um, you can see it's very narrow and, um, and very uh, steep, and uh, that's the reason it's not much used today, uh, because ships are too big, and so you can get small boats through there, but not really the kind of shipping that you would like, so it's not much used. So there is uh, the Isthmus of, of Cor- uh, Corinth, and you can see Paul has traveled to Corinth. So I want to look at Corinth real quickly. Um, Cor- this is the city of Corinth, and you can see, as so many Greek cities have, there's a section of in the middle with ruins in it, and if we zoom in very closely on those ruins, we can see this structure. And um, that must be the most photographed structure in Corinth because if you do a Google search for uh, images of Corinth, everybody likes to take pictures of that. You saw the picture on your bulletin, so there it is again from the side, and here it is from some other tourist, and yet again from this tourist. And as I was looking at all these pictures of Corinth, trying to find one for the bulletin, something jumped out at me. Now, this is kind of a generational test. I understand that today uh, young people are not even being taught Roman numerals, so... So what a shame that is. They don't get to the joy of trying to do something useful in, in Roman numerals. But, um, but maybe some of you are of the generation where you had a chart like this back in high school somewhere, and you had to learn the different types of capitals on, on ancient uh, columns. So there was the Doric, the Ionian, and the, uh, the Corinthian. So the Doric was basically the plain, plain vanilla capital, and then the Ionic had the little scrolls on the side. My daughter calls it the Little Caesars type of um, capital. But then the fancy one, the one with the little leaves and the curly cues and so forth, that was the Corinthian capital. So I learned that and it lodged in my head. It's wasting a useful space that I could do something with, but, but I learned that back in high school. But I was looking at this picture and I was going, wait a minute, wait, wait a minute. It was all lies. <laughs> Everything I learned in high school is now up for grabs because they've got Doric columns in Corinth. What on earth is up with that? So. so, Corinth is interesting not just because they've got the wrong kind of capitals in Corinth, but because um, it speaks to this question we raised about what to do when God is silent. See, I don't think that there's an answer for what to do when God is silent. I don't think there's an answer about why God is silent. It is a mystery um, and... I can I can point you to passages in the scripture that might give you a, a piece of the answer or might say, in these circumstances, this is how somebody in the Bible dealt with that problem. I can point you to the writings of, of theologians who have grappled with it. They've looked not only at the Bible, but at the writings of other theologians, and they've spent time contemplating why it is that God sometimes seems absent or far away. 
But I think any reason that we can get our heads wrapped around is so small that it can encompass the majesty and the wonder of God. That God is a big God and we have small minds. And so any question, any answer small enough for us to fit in our head isn't big enough to contain the reality of God. But while we may not know the why, Scripture does teach us what we can do in those circumstances. And I think that the passage we're looking at today speaks to that. So what I want to do is I want to look at this passage, what happened when Paul got to got to Corinth. So um, uh, we're going to see that um, that this is an example of where Paul um, experiences that same feeling. So uh, way ahead. Let me back up. So, um, so Paul is there in um, Athens. So we're reading now in um, chapter 18, and it says, Paul left Athens and he goes to Corinth. And there he became acquainted with a Jew named Aquila, who was born in Pontus and had recently arrived from Italy with his wife Priscilla. They had left Italy when Claudius Caesar deported all Jews from Rome. Now, it's easy to pass over that, and it's really not my point, but I can't help but stop because um, it's important. For the last several years, um, we have been in a debate in our country about immigration. And there's people who talk about building big walls that will make America great, and uh, maybe that will happen, but, um, but it's a debate. It's a live, it's a live issue. And there's people who say, well, uh, we don't owe anything to illegal immigrants. And other people say, um, well, we need to have compassion for undocumented migrants. And so we have a debate going on in our country, and we've seen a similar situation in Europe where uh, there have been refugees from the Middle East and from North Africa, people who are going to Europe, uh, sometimes looking for safety and sometimes looking for a better life. And when we consider those things, I think it's very easy for us to take the perspective of people who are staying put, who are where they are comfortable being. And so we have a certain uh, perspective as we look at that problem. We can say, well, they shouldn't do this or that. But Paul and Aquila, uh, Aquila and Priscilla were in a different category. They were the people moving. They were there doing their job in Rome, trying to make a living as tent makers. And one day the edict comes down from Caesar. He says, you all need to leave. I'm going to uproot you from everything that you're connected to right now. Whatever community you built, whatever, whatever homes you have, whatever businesses you're part of, get up and go, because you're not welcome here. And I think we need to, to to just pause a minute and picture what that must have been like for Priscilla and Aquila. Everything that they had packed up with them, leaving Italy, trying to find a new place to start over. So they wind up eventually in Corinth. And when they're in Corinth, they bump into Paul, who has recently arrived from Athens. And Paul gets a job working for them because they're tent makers. Paul helps them to kind of get their business going again as he works as a tent maker for them. And each Sabbath, Luke tells us, found Paul at the synagogue. This is Paul's habit. We've seen that in Philippi and Thessalonica in Berea. Paul goes first to the Jews and speaks to them the good news about the Messiah who has come, Jesus. And then after Silas and Timothy came down from Macedonia, Paul spent all his time preaching the word. He testified to the Jews that Jesus was the Messiah. But when they opposed and insulted him, 
Wait a minute. They opposed him? Do you have a sense of deja vu at this point? This has been Paul's story. Every place he's gone, he's been opposed and insulted. Can you imagine how tiring that must have been? You know, he he goes on this journey. He goes to Philippi. He's beaten and imprisoned. And he's told to leave town. He's asked nicely to leave town by the people who beat him and imprisoned him. He goes to Thessalonica, and he literally is has to sneak out of town by night. And there's a bond posted guaranteeing he wouldn't come back. He goes to Berea. He goes to Athens. Every place he goes, he meets with resistance and opposition. And this is not new. It was true in Asia Minor, too. It's nothing unique about Greece. Every place Paul has gone, he's encountered opposition. And not just on his second missionary journey, but before that, on his first missionary journey, Paul continually counters opposition. Can you imagine how exhausting that must be? To get up in the morning and say, I guess I'm going to go to the synagogue and be insulted and opposed when I'm just trying to tell them the greatest news in the history of news. How exhausted do you think Paul might have been? Luke doesn't tell us that God is absent in this story. But he doesn't tell us God is present. And he's told us all through the book of Acts the places where God is present. And I think he's inviting us to consider in this spot that Paul feels the way we sometimes feel, that God, where are you? I'm just trying to do what I think is right, and look what's happening. You know, you know, you know the saying, right? Uh, what's the definition of insanity? You do the same thing over and over and over again. You expect different results. What's Paul been doing? Is Paul insane? So he says, all right, all right. I will leave. He leaves. He actually doesn't go very far. He um, Luke, tell, uh, Luke tells us that um, he went to the home of Titius Justus, a Gentile. Remember, we've been seeing how there are Gentiles um, who were in the, the synagogue culture. They were God-fearers. They heard um, about a God that they liked more than the God that they grew up with. They heard about a God of grace and mercy when they went to synagogues, when they talked to Jews, and they said, I like that God more than the one that I was told about when I was a kid. I like your God. But they had not yet become Jews. So one of them was Titius Justus, and he lived next door to the synagogue. So Paul leaves the synagogue, but he doesn't go very far. And he actually takes some people with him. Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, and everyone in his household believed in the Lord. And many others also heard Paul, became believers, and were baptized. Now, if we read in uh, Paul's letters, he actually says when he was in Corinth, he didn't baptize that many people. So my guess is what Paul did is he put some, some structures in place. He had, he had leaders of the church underneath him who, who were doing a lot of the work of the church. Because what I think is going on here is Paul gets a break. For the first time in a long time, Paul gets a break. One night in the, one night the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision and told him, don't be afraid, speak out, don't be silent, for I am with you and no one will attack and harm you, for many people in the city belong to me. The last time Paul had any, any, any um, uh, intervention from God, any, any direction from God that we're aware of, that Luke shares with us, the last time we heard that was two chapters ago. Paul had a vision that summoned him to Macedonia. Paul, get up and go. Come over here to Macedonia. Help out this man in Macedonia. 
But here the vision is not of a summons to some new mission field. Here it is a promise of refuge. Paul, stay put. Keep doing what you're doing. You're not going to be hurt. I am with you. And there are many in this city who are mine. Paul has promised refuge. And Paul, I think, jumped at it. It says that Paul stayed for 18 months. Paul stayed there for the next year and a half teaching the Word of God. As far as we know, that's the longest time Paul spent anywhere from the day he was he encountered Jesus on the road to Damascus all the way to the end of his life. As far as we know, this is the longest period of time except when he was under house arrest and couldn't go anywhere. So Paul got a break. It's hard to see this as anything but a break. But breaks don't always last, right? They, they don't go on forever. And eventually, Gallio becomes governor. And Gallio, uh, when Gallio becomes governor, some Jews rose up against Paul and brought before him the governor for judgment. They accused Paul of persuading people to worship God in ways that are contrary to our law. But before Paul can make his defense, just after the, the, the first, after the case against him is stated, Gallio interrupts and says, I don't need to hear a defense. He says, he turns to the accusers and says, listen, if this was a case involving some wrongdoing or a serious crime, I'd have a reason to accept your case. But since it's merely a question of words and names in your Jewish law, take care of it yourself. I refuse to judge such matters. And he threw them out of his court. So Paul got a breather and then Gallio. Um, he says, I refuse to take care of it. I refuse to judge such matters. And he threw them out of the courtroom. And then, to make matters worse, he ignores some extrajudicial violence as they kind of beat up Sosthenes to teach him. Um, and I think, I think Gallio was saying, you know, that's like paying court costs. It's a way of saying, I don't want you to, to clog up my calendar with frivolous cases like this. And that is interesting um, for two reasons. First of all, if you're the kind of person who, who is interested in Corinthian capitals, if you're kind of a church history geek, um, uh, then it's interesting because we know when Gallio did this. We know that Gallio only served as governor for a two-year period. And during this period of time uh, that led up to, to um, Gallio's governorship, Paul, uh, scholars tell us, wrote the, a letter back to that church in Thessalonica that he was prohibited to go back from. The, the bond would be lost if, if he went back to Thessalonica. He couldn't go back, but he could write a letter. And he did write a letter. He wrote a letter that is, we believe, First Thessalonians. It, it is the oldest book in what became the New Testament. And Paul wrote it during this period of time. And that's interesting if you're a church history geek, because it tells you, it tells you how rapidly the Christian movement spread out of the Holy Land and across the Roman world. Because just 20 years after the resurrection, at most 20 years after the resurrection, there are people in Corinth. This is Paul's second missionary journey. And Paul is telling them, I'm only telling you what I was taught myself. Sometimes you hear people say, well, yeah, you know, I, I respect Jesus as a teacher, but I don't really believe a lot of the things that you Christians believe. I don't believe about how he, you know, rose from the dead or things like that. That was all a legend that the church built up later in the, in the centuries that followed. But there weren't centuries. There was maybe a decade maybe five years, maybe some scholars say as few as six months from the time of the resurrection to the time that the first creeds of Christendom became um, uh, set in, in articulating who Jesus was and what he did. So that's interesting if you're, a, if you're a Corinthian capital kind of person. 
But Gallio is significant in another way, too. Gallio was a highly respected Roman jurist. And when he refused to judge this case, he established a precedent. Not, not like we have where it's required that lower courts pay attention to higher courts. But in practice, people respected Gallio. And they said, I know Gallio has looked at this case. Gallio doesn't see this as anything that the Roman world needs to be concerned about. And they tolerated Christianity. Gallio established the idea that Christians should be tolerated. And so what he did was he bought the Christian movement some breathing space. See, Paul wasn't the only one who got a breather here. The Christian movement got a breather. And for about a decade, Christians were free to travel across the Roman world. I don't mean it was easy, but at least they weren't being oppressed. And during that time, while there were still eyewitnesses to the resurrection, they spread all the way across the entire Roman world. About a decade later, the new emperor, Nero, put a stop to it. He killed a lot of Christians, but think about that. There were Christians in Rome by then. There was enough Christians in Rome that people wanted an example made of them. Because of Gallio's decision here, granting the church toleration. So Gallio gives the church a break. It's interesting to note Gallio was also killed by, Gallio and his two brothers were killed by um, Nero. So Nero was a bad person, not just a Christian. So Paul got a break when he needed it most. And so did the church. But breaks come to an end. Paul stayed in Corinth for some time after that, then said goodbye to the brothers and sisters and went to nearby Kincrae. There he shaved his head according to a Jewish custom, marking the end of a vow. Then he set sail for Syria, taking Priscilla and Aquila with him. And so that's the end of Paul's European leg of his second missionary journal. He goes back to, to Syria and then from there to Jerusalem. And that's the end of his adventures in, in Europe. But we heard that he took Priscilla and Aquila with him. They went with him to Syria, and they eventually made their way back to Rome. And years later... When they were in Rome, Paul wrote a letter to the Christian community in Rome, and in it, he greeted them. We know that they were in Rome because he greeted them by name, and he said, Give greetings to Priscilla and Aquila, my co-workers in the ministry of Christ Jesus. In fact, they once risked their lives for me. I'm thankful to them, and so were all the Gentile churches. Also give greetings to the church that meets in their home. When they got to Rome, Priscilla and Aquila started a church or hosted a church in their home. In that same letter, Paul put his experiences, not just the ones we read about today, but his entire experience as an evangelist, as a, as a follower of Jesus together in, a, in, in that letter of the Romans. It's the most magnificent work of theology in the Bible, and um, I've been resistant to preach on it, um, except for chapter 8, which I love, and I can't, I can't read enough. And in chapter 8, Paul wrote this. He said, he said, we know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose for them. Paul said, I have felt, where is God? I have, I have been beaten, I have been shipwrecked, I have been imprisoned, I have been stoned. 
And I have had every occasion to think, where is God? But I know, I have seen with my own eyes that God causes everything to work together for good. When I was in Corinth at the end of my tether, when Priscilla and Aquila had lost everything, when they had been ejected from their home in Rome and told they had to find something else, God brought us together and they saved my life. And they supported me until Timothy and Silas came and then I could get back to preaching. He says, God causes everything to work together. So let me conclude with a couple of observations. If God seems far off, wait to see what he's been up to. Because when, when God is silent and you're wondering, where, where are you, God? Am I even on the right page here? I thought you were calling me to Philippi, but I got beat up there. I thought you were sending me to Thessalonica, but I had to sneak out by night. When you are wondering, where is God in my life? Just wait. Because God may be arranging scenes as dramatic in your own life as the ones we see here with Paul and Priscilla and Aquila and Gallio. God is sovereign, and he rules the nations. And that's true for your life, too. If God is silent, it doesn't mean God isn't doing anything. It doesn't mean that God isn't at work in your life. So wait to see what he's been up to. Let me give you another application. Don't insist on a burning bush. You know, I think, I think, you know, when I, w- when I first became a Christian, I went to my pastor. I said, you know, I've never had any, any call from God. I've never felt like Moses at the burning bush or Paul on the road to Damascus. I, I, I've never heard God speak to me. But I don't think God typically does. I think God typically speaks to us through his Holy Spirit. And sometimes through his Holy Spirit breathe community, the church. You know, there are no, there, no low range, low range, there's a saying, there are no lone ranger Christians. If your only experience of God is those mountaintop experiences, you go up, you, you hike up and you look down and you see it and it's so wonderful. You go out on the ocean, you look at the stars at night and you say, oh, this is so wonderful. That's great. But you gotta go home. And if you're not part of a community of faith, if you don't have people who can speak the Holy Spirit's good news to you, you're going to be exhausted, just like Paul was. Paul needed Timothy and Silas. Paul needed Priscilla and Aquila. And trust me, if Paul needed the support of a community of faith, so do you, right? If Paul needs needs Christian community, you do too. So if you're not part of a church, if you're part of another church, you know, God bless you, and I, I uh, expect you to continue worshiping there and being a part of that community. But if you, you're part of the community here, but you've never joined the church, let me invite you to take that step. Become a part of our community, because maybe we can minister to you, and maybe some of us are waiting to hear what you have to say to us. So don't wait for a burning bush. The burning bush may be sitting next to you. And then lastly, breaks don't last forever. You know, I don't know where you're at in your, in your, in your story. Maybe you're exhausted. Maybe you're like Paul when he got to Corinth at the end of his rope and you just need a break. God's okay with breaks. Maybe, though, you have been in a break for a while and it's time for you to get back in the game. 
maybe you need to say, all right, look, I'm kind of beaten up and I'm kind of scarred, but I need to get back in the game. Paul got back in a game that was a lot harder than the ones most of us face. So ask yourself, where am I? Should I be taking a break? Do I need a break? Or is it time for me to get back in the game? And I'll ask the same question to us as a church. God calls the church to a mission. And we need to ask ourselves, where are we in that? Are we, are we exhausted? Are we ready for, for a breather? Are we in a breather? Or is God calling us to be back in the game? To get back up? To, to, to go on to the next phase? To, to get on the boat with Paul and Priscilla and Aquila and head back to Syria for whatever the next phase of our adventure is? What is God calling you to do? What is God calling the church to do? Do you have people around you who can speak God's grace into your life? And watch for God, because he may seem absent, but that doesn't mean he's not busy. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the good news about Jesus. News that was so good, it inspired Paul to go on those journeys, to to face the shipwrecks and the beatings, the imprisonments, the stonings, the mob violence. Lord, our lives are completely different from Paul's in so many ways. But there are peaks, and where there are peaks, there are also valleys. Lord, I pray you would give your grace to those here today who are in a valley. If they feel that you are absent from them, Lord, help them to see your hand in their life. And Lord, help them to be connected to the church in a way that they hear your reassuring words from part of the community breathed into existence by your Holy Spirit. Lord, help us to know where we are. Do we need a break? Or do we need to get back in the game? Guide us as we make all these decisions. We pray it through Christ our Lord. Amen.